but seems like a breakthrough for anyone who has had the drudgery of trying to resolve a small claims or strata property dispute. The Civil Resolution Tribunal is about to open 24 hours, seven days a week, and what holds out a lot of promise in the way we settle disagreement between opposing sides. Shannon Salter is the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal. She is also an adjunct professor of administrative law at UBC Faculty of Law, commissioner on the Financial Institutions Commission, and vice president of the BC Council of Administrative Tribunals. She earned her BA in law degree at UBC and her master's of law at University of Toronto. Is that correct? You've got that right. We're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ian. I'm happy to be here, too. Your resume is long and impressive. Uh, Is it fair to say that you're part law student, part law professional? (laughs) Well, I haven't been a student for many years, but I have sat on a number of administrative tribunals. I practice as as a litigator in a downtown firm and... As you mentioned, I do teach administrative law and legal ethics at the law school. So I have a good footing in administrative tribunals, which, of course, is very helpful since we're setting up Canada's first online tribunal. Sure. Are we witnessing or are we a party to what is uh, a shift or some fundamental change to digital in the way we do law? I hope so. And the reason I hope so is that on uh, average, access to online technology is much, much greater than access to legal services, regardless of where you are. So one of the first things that we did when we started this project is ask people, how are you using the Internet in BC? And what we found was that 92% of British Columbians are online every day. People are overwhelmingly comfortable with things like online banking, texting, all the kinds of basic Internet use that you'll need to use a CRT. And so that was a pretty good validator. And what's interesting, too, is that 69% of people in B.C. over the age of 74 are also online every day. Uh, We have talked about it on the show before, but and I keep wanting to call it the the revolution, but it's the the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and it is a bit of a revolution, uh, the CRT as you refer to it. um, What is it and why? Because we've been talking about it for a while. Why is it taking so long to launch? Well, it is novel. And so not only is it the first of its kind in Canada, but as far as we know, it's the first of its kind in the world. So almost weekly, I get inquiries from other jurisdictions that are interested in doing something like this and are wondering how to go about it. So we're really trailblazers here in British Columbia on this stuff. But we're also seizing the opportunity to do this very differently. We're trying to co-design it with the public, and I I say that a lot because I mean it. We have an opportunity, because of this blank slate, to build this around the public, to do it completely differently from the way that the justice system works now, and that takes a bit more time. It takes a lot of consultation, a lot of user testing, a lot of bringing people on board with us, and so we've built very strong relationships with community advocates, with the legal profession, most importantly with the public and the strata stakeholders who will be using this first. One of the things that I noticed on the website, which uh, I'll tell is uh, is civilresolutionbc.ca, and what stands out to me is that you want people's input and that you keep talking about on the website that if you keep giving us feedback, then we we can adjust accordingly to make it work for everybody. Exactly. And that's not traditionally the way our justice system has developed. It's mainly developed by legal actors, really, who are designing it because that's what works for legal actors. 
But uh, that's not what the public expects these days, I think, in particular. And so we have this opportunity to really bring the justice system to the public, to build it around their lives and the realities of their lives. People have jobs. They have families, community obligations. They may not live in an urban center. And using technology as a tool, we can bring uh, expertise and legal services to people and allow them to engage with it whenever it's convenient for them. Can we talk a little bit about the Solution Explorer? This is a software that is really at the core of what you're doing. Yeah, so it comes from the idea that if you have a problem, a legal problem, it's not so helpful to Google generally strata problems or strata rental problems because what you're going to get is likely 50 pages of strata law. And what you want is probably tailored information about your strata problem. So new research is showing that the best way to give people that information is asking them questions and using the opportunity to give them tailored bits of information Mm -hmm. in plain language. So, for example, the Strata Property Act has 322 sections, an average of two subsections per section, plus the regs, (laughs) plus the bylaws, and so overall about 1,000 provisions. What we hope to do with the Solution Explorer is in about four or five plain language questions get you to the right pieces. What will it cost our people here to access this? Uh, Is it something... For example, if you go to small claims court, you know that you're in for a certain amount of money. You might have to employ a lawyer. This is going to, in large part, if you can go through the first stages of this, uh, you you won't need a lawyer probably. So I'm guessing that this is going to be a lot less expensive. That's our aim. So the front part of the CRT, the Solution Explorer, is absolutely free. And there's lots of tools there to go off and resolve your problem yourself, hopefully. We'll give you pre-written template letters you can use. Uh, if you can't do resolve your dispute that way, you'll be able to start a claim. And the fees are quite modest in justice system terms. So right. it's $125 to file an online application. Uh, if your claim later has to go to a tribunal member to be resolved, it can't be resolved in the facilitation or mediation stage, you'll pay an additional fee. So we did a lot of user surveys before we set our fees, and there was a strong support for, A, having fees because it deters frivolous claims. Absolutely and also making those modest and covering some of the cost. There's also strong support for having a menu of fees, so paying an amount as you use a a service or take a step instead of paying a total amount right off the bat. I should also say there's fee waivers. So if somebody is low income on a fixed income, they can very easily online fill out a fee waiver, and if they qualify, they won't have to pay anything to them. Uh, The intake is July 13th, civilresolutionbc.ca. And uh, we'll take a quick break on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. This is a segment that I've been doing for a few years now on the Home Discovery Show and thought it would be a good idea to bring it over to Vancouver Consumer. And we called the segment, What's Bugging You? Joe Gabera of Green Valley Pest Control joins us by phone to help us make this summer uh, a summer that is free of pests and critters. How you doing, Joe? Good. How are you? Thanks Excellent. Yeah, you bet. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, always get a tremendous amount of feedback, too, when we have you on. Um, I want to try something a little bit different just to bring Vancouver consumer listeners up to speed. Uh, talk a little bit about Green Valley Pest Control and uh, what piqued your interest in getting into that business? Uh, did you know Were you one of these kids that liked the, the creepy crawlers when you were, you know, like a, just a toddler or what? I always loved the bug shows. Absolutely. But uh, I was actually going to university and uh, looking for a summer job, and I stumbled upon this, and uh, it just kept carrying on from there. And and you fell in love with it. 
Yes, I guess you could say that. <laughs> well, I know that you're. Uh, I know that you're very serious and passionate about what you do, but uh, you also have a very realistic uh, disposition. And uh, as I say, it's always good to talk to you. So, uh, if you are in the midst right now of pests or any kind of critter problem at your place and you want to ask an expert, this is a good time to call us. We have a few minutes to take calls at 604-280-9898 or star 9898 if you're mobile uh, this morning. I, w- I want to start with uh, this next question, and that is the weather. This weather, I think, is typical of Vancouver weather. The last couple of summers were a little unusual. Last summer in particular, we suffered from a drought, but what we're seeing so far, would you agree that it's been pretty typical for Vancouver weather? Yes, absolutely. You know, we get the rain, then we get the sun again, and back and forth. But that really doesn't affect what we do. <laughs> okay. So, and that, that's what leads to the next thing. Uh, I know that in my neighborhood, uh, we're seeing lots of raccoons and lots of squirrels. Yes, it is the season. And it doesn't matter whether it's rain or sun. It doesn't matter at all. We're going to get them in the homes. Raccoons and squirrels especially, they like to have secondary dens. Hmm. So they'll have um, one maybe outside and or even sometimes two outside, and then they'll use homes for breeding purposes. It's the females that come in. Oh, is that right? You see, I always thought that raccoons, and I, I thought that they had their, their babies in the den and then would try to find a home after that, after the birth. Uh, well, lots of times they'll have them in homes. Yeah. They will, okay. Sometimes they'll pack them into homes, though, too. You are correct there. They will do both. But, yeah, no, they can have them either way. What do we need to worry more about, raccoons or or squirrels? Um, personally, I would say squirrels because they'll damage your home more. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that entirely. Raccoons will tear your shingles off and get in and, yeah, that kind of damage. But nine times out of ten, a raccoon will go in just to... You know, where a roof angle meets a roof angle or pull some soffit down, and they don't do that much damage. But you get a squirrel up in there, and they'll start gnawing on wires and stuff. Squirrels have caused fires before, you know, or chewed electrical lines or cable lines or telephone lines. Yeah, they'll just eat anything. Same thing for mice. Are, Are mice as damaging? No, no, mice aren't as damaging as like a squirrel or a rat. Rats more so because they're a larger animal and they they tend to chew water pipes and things like that. That's where we get a lot of damage too is from rats chewing water pipes. Yeah. Especially it, when it's a drought, you know, droughting outside. Then right. So uh, with the, the more rainfall that we've had, a little bit more moisture around, it, it, it still hasn't had that much of an effect? No, not really. We seem to be still getting everything. Yeah. Now, what do you fear more? Do you fear more raccoons or skunks? Uh, myself, personally, oh, I'd rather deal with a raccoon than a skunk any day. <laughs> <laughs> and is, that, is that just because of the spray or what? Absolutely. You know, I've suited up so many times and covered the traps and everything, and the little guys, they still spray. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, they, especially the younger ones because they're timid, right? Yeah, and they're probably not fully mature and, and, and yeah. have as much control as perhaps a more mature exactly. skunk. Yeah, gotcha. Um, but because I, I've been fortunate, I, I've seen a lot of skunks around this year as well. And like the raccoons, they really are attractive animals. And maybe that's just me, but how, how can you not like the look of these animals? And yet, they, oh, absolutely, they are. Yes, they're pretty troublesome. Not a big fan of rats. I'm not a big fan of mice. Uh, I think they're just a big old pain. And I have found personally. Because I've had rats in my attic, they're they're next to impossible to get rid of. I don't know if they keep coming back for more or what the deal is, but it seems that this has been a 
maybe it's just because I've been going through it. Uh, it seems like this has been a bad time for rats. I've had many people tell me they've had rats in their attic. Yes. Well, it's just a population explosion. You know, especially the more homes that are built, we're going to get a lot more rodents coming into the homes because you've taken away their natural habitat. And once you do that, they're they're going to find a place to hang out. Absolutely. All and right. They- they're called commensal rodents, so which means they hang out with humans because they know we have food. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, we got a new puppy recently, and um, when we when we picked up the puppy, uh, they, they said to us, um, this dog will fall in love with the person that feeds it. <laughs> it's just, that's it. Uh, Jerry's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. What do you got for Joe Gabera? Moths. Little Moz. tiny moths in my cupboards that fried oh. everything. Well, that's something you don't need pest control for, but you do need uh, information on how to get rid of them. So basically, yeah. they're called I, a food. They're called a pantry moth or a meal moth. So they come in with a food source. So I get a lot of calls for these. So this is what you have to do: you have to find the food source and throw it out. So it's going to be a grain, which is like it, or any cereal, pretzels, bagels, flour, anything. Done that all. Done that already, yeah. and still got them kicking about. Yeah. Even dog and cat food, okay? you gotta get, you got to check your dog and cat food out. But then you've got to put everything else in sealed containers like Tupperware. So if you've got a box that hasn't been opened yet, pasta or cereal, they'll nest in the folds of the box. As soon as you open that up, they'll get back in. So take it out of the box, put it in a uh, sealed container. So now you have everything sealed in your cupboard. Wipe everything else down. You're going to see their cocoons in the corners. And sometimes you'll see them up on the ceiling where the ceiling and wall meet. And you'll see these little cocoons. Just wipe them up with a Kleenex and flush them. So now you've got rid of the food source. It's going to be about a month till they all completely die off. But I mean every food source. So you've got to check, like I said, make sure you have no other animal food left out at night, no bread on the counter. Check underneath all your appliances, too. Make sure nothing's spilled. Like one cookie that's fallen underneath a fridge, a stove, or anything like that, we'll feed them for months. Mm. I know. So, I, I, we've done a lot of that. Yeah, you've missed something. Really uh, obviously, any uh, thing I could spray or you can spray Raid. I mean, that'll kill them on contact, but you don't really need to. Like I said, once you get rid of the right. boosters, that they're done. I'm, I'm wondering if Jerry doesn't need somebody, if he's missing it and he's tried as hard as he has, and I, I have no doubt that he has, uh, sometimes maybe it's it's good just to get a, get a cleaner in. Get somebody yeah, to, just to go over with a good, solid, uh, what I call it, uh, I call it a construction clean. Uh, after yeah. a job site has been done, you'll, they'll bring in an industrial cleaner and, and get the job done. 604-280-9898 or star 9898. Thank you, Jerry, for your call. I want to ask you about ants because there's a whole bunch of them crawling around. Yes, we do a lot of ants, especially, out, well, they start outside. Most of the ants we're getting inside are like either a cornfield or a moisture ant or a even a little honey ant. So they start outside, and if you leave them too long, then they'll get up around your foundation. Next thing you know, they're up in your wall, and then they're in your house. Right. So are they are they problematic? Yeah, they're a nuisance pest more than anything. But, I mean, if you, if you catch them early enough and we, can, we do a perimeter spray outside, uh, then we can usually get rid of them. But if you wait too long and then they've got a big nest in the wall, that's when your problem starts because then they're a lot harder to get rid of, you know, because then we got to start drilling and stuff to get into those little cracks and crevices. Right. That's not fun. What if you see an ant in your place with wings? Uh, that's usually the reproductive, or that is the reproductive. It's either going to be a male or female, and that means that they're in your place with a wing. You've probably got a colony somewhere in your house. Right. So that's yeah. when you should be calling Green Valley. 
Absolutely. Yeah. We'll come and help you out. Otherwise, uh, is it something that uh, if you just have a few corn ants or something like that in your house, any need to panic? Not necessarily. I mean, some people are pretty good with, I mean, I know my father. He would never hire a pest control technician. Oh, yeah? He He could kill anything himself. So if you're a handy person and you can find the original nesting site, that's a key to, you know, almost all insects. You've got to find out where they started from and kill that source. Right. So quite often, that, I was just going to say that with the ants, quite often if you look in your garden or in your grass, if you can see it, you'll see what amounts to, it looks like drill holes. Yes. yes. And, and that's quite often where they are. Yeah, or little mounds. Like a lot of people see them in their sidewalks. There's mounds underneath. Now, those are a little harder to get to because if you don't have the proper equipment, you can't really get down deep enough. And if you don't have the proper sprays, so that's a little tougher. I mean, if it's a little tiny nest against the edge of your uh, edge of your sidewalk, sure. But if they're underneath the sidewalk or underneath your patio bricks, those are a lot harder to get rid of without the proper. Hey, Corky, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Go ahead to Joe Gabera from Green Valley Pest Control. Okay, good. I have a question about out, outside pest moles in your yard. I oh, don't we understand. Do. Uh, I don't, it seems like there's a poison for everything except for moles. How do you get no. rid of moles? Yeah, well, there, there, there's mole bombs, which is like a gas, but moles, we we usually stake trap them. So we use a trapping system and uh, dig down into their runs and put a trap in and trap them. And usually most yards just have one mole, but that one mole can sure do a lot of damage. So, But, yeah, no, we trap moles all the time. There you go, uh, Corky. Uh, you can give uh, Green Valley Pest Control a call if you want, or, there's of course, there's other outfits out there that are available and uh, take care of the moles because what a nuisance they are as well. I, I want to ask you, because we're right in the thick of it now, uh, we're in bear season right now. Do you get a lot of calls for bears? Do you handle bears? I'm sure that you've got some good advice to avoid them because even where you live, I think there's some bears, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I live right by Kanaka Creek. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. We get a lot of bears. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, we don't. We don't. I mean, I, I shouldn't say we. I get the odd call, but I just pass everybody on to conservation. Right. So that's who you talk to about that. So we talk about when it comes to bears and other wildlife, we talk about food source. Uh, for bears uh, in particular, maybe for raccoons and, and others, uh, how do we strip our backyard down so much that we can avoid these things and still enjoy our yard? Well, vegetable gardens, that's, you know, if you want to enjoy vegetable gardens, you're going to have to compete with the wildlife. If you've got fruit trees, you're going to have to compete with wildlife. But nine times out of ten, it's just because you have um, garbage that's available. I mean, that's an easy food source. And right. raccoons and bears especially love regular human garbage. So you've got to – I keep mine in my garage until it's garbage day. Yeah. So they can't get in. I think I'm the only one in the neighborhood. Everybody in my neighborhood puts their garbage out the night before. And, and you're, you're, I don't know what the time is, seven thirty, eight thirty at night. And, and I, I understand because you're in a hurry in the morning. Mm-hmm. But there, hello, why don't you put up a sign? Come, here's here's food. <laughs> exactly. We got to leave it there, Joe. Joe Gabera, Green Valley Pest Control. Your website is Green Valley Pest Control Ltd. As in Limited. dot ca. Green, Green Valley Pest Control Limited. dot ca. Uh, we'll do this again soon, Joe Gabera. We we'll always appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And we'll take a break. 
on Vancouver Consumer. We're going cycling next on News Talk 980 CKNW. Most of us who have been living in this area for any length of time or even a short period of time would agree that uh, we enjoy some of the mildest weather and best scenery and that pedal power is a big part of the culture here, no matter if you're a fair-weather rider, cruiser, commuter, or full-on thrill-seeker. Cycling has never been so popular, and with that in mind, we invited Andrew Deneen, who is the manager from Giant Vancouver on 4th Avenue, to find out what's new in bicycles, accessories, parts, and repairs. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for that invitation. Right. You bet. Uh, how did it go at Catsilano? Pardon me? How did your day at uh, Catsilano oh. go yesterday? Um, busy, yes. Yeah, obviously the street party happening up the road. We get lots of floor traffic coming through and people are still in the mood to buy bikes. I'll bet. And the sun's out. Talk a little bit about the trends in bikes and riders. Uh, what's new and exciting? And uh, let's talk about, the, as I mentioned off the top, serious riders, commuters, fair weather riders and beginners. Uh, these are all different categories. Uh, and are you able to accommodate each one? Yes, yeah. Um, for us here, we do the whole range of the Giant bikes. Um, Giant's the largest company in the world. And we have bicycle manufacturing and production. So they have things from a kid's bike for a three-year-old without the pedals up to $9,500 carbon road bikes as well. And then wow. the, the commuter bike in the middle, um, and then a full range of mountain bikes, whether you're going to ride with the bike park or you're just cruising around some gravel trails too. What do you think of those kid bikes without the pedals? It's not something that I that I uh, had available when I had kids or when I was a kid, and I see a lot of children riding them, and, and people seem to really like the idea. Could, to just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the run bike, so basically it's a small wheel, um, there's no pedals on the bike, so the child basically sort of walks with the bike at the start, and then when they feel more comfortable, they actually start to walk faster, and they sort of lift their feet up. So it gives them the balance of a bike when it's on the two wheels, and then what it does, so when they grow to be into the bigger style bike, like with a 16-inch wheel, then most of the time the parents can actually have the training wheels off that bike, so the child won't really use a training wheel bike from sort of from three years old and up. Yeah. Definitely could, could help with the balance and to watch these kids fly around the shop on these bikes and they're pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. The thing with the training wheels is that you can never get them even in the, at least in my time, uh, you couldn't get them even and they would never stay on. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty good these days. Um, we still sell a lot of bikes like that. The child, with the bigger wheel, they want to feel like they're still happy on the bike, but um, the balance bike is definitely... One thing that a parent should be looking into just to sort of get the kid developing a bit more, yeah, quicker as well. Well, there are there are so many different types of bikes, and and it's it's safe to say that one size does not fit all. How is the best way to approach sizing a bicycle for yourself? Uh, with that, obviously, road bike is definitely key to have the right size. So when you're using a bike with the, the drop handlebars. Um, you do want the sizing to be right there where the person's not reaching a long way for the handlebar. Mm-hmm. Um, we have lots of trained staff here that we all road bike, we all mountain bike. So when a customer comes in, we can pretty safely sort of work out what size they're going to be. And for their knowledge, like we'll put them on a size bigger or smaller so they can feel the difference between the two. And we're here to help them get the right size bike. We're not going to put someone on a bike that's too big or a bike that's too small. Mm-hmm. And then with a child, like usually that, 13, 14-year-old son or daughter, 
sometimes there, we sort of size it by slightly bigger, so the parent's not buying a new bike every six months or so. so. Yeah. How often should your bike be tuned up, or how often should maintenance be performed? Um, depending on the person and what they're riding. If they're riding once or twice a week, then the bikes do sort of look after themselves pretty well. If the person's riding a lot and sort of doing their commute back and forth, then we generally get that customer to come past a bit more often. Um, we want to check brake pads and tyre and chain life, just those usual consumables, which some people know, some people don't know about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you leave things longer, it does cost a bit more money to get it going again. So Right. That's a good point. Now, Giant offers a line of hybrids. Um, are they still popular? Are they gaining in popularity? Or has their time come and gone in terms of uh, trend? Uh, no, the hybrid bike is still really popular. Um, one of our hybrid bikes in our range for the last three years has been the most popular bike Canada-wide that Giant sells. Oh, really? Which so, model is that? It's the Giant Rome. Okay. It's a bike that's like a flat handlebar with disc brakes, but it's something you can ride on the roads and you can ride on dirt and gravel too. So the hybrid bikes are always going to stay. Um, they're definitely a bike that we sell a lot of during the year, and they, sort of, they don't really have their season. They sort of go 12 months of the year. They're always selling. Yeah. I've got a Seek, and um, I absolutely love it. Yep, there you go. I changed the tires, though. I I've, I went to a slightly less knobby tire, mm-hmm. and um, and I've been really, really enjoying it. Uh, there's A lot of bicycling has to do with the manner in which you ride, so I, I was hoping that you could uh, talk a little bit about uh, the safety aspect of riding and, and what you do in your industry to promote safety. Yeah, like obviously a lot of people, they're either buying a mountain bike from us, so... If they're buying that mountain bike and they're riding at Whistler or they're riding the North Shore, then obviously a suitable mountain bike helmet is needed. Some people are buying the knee pads and elbow pads. You sort of want that protection there. And then the commuter person, obviously for that rider, for that hybrid-style commuter bike, then things like fenders and all the sort of accessories they want, we're having them fitted to the bike. But then lights... Um, like sort of the brighter coloured jackets and clothing, especially coming into obviously not winter yet, but right. coming into the winter months. We want them to be seen. There's obviously so many bikes out there on the roads that you do want to be visible to the traffic. And a and good set of lights is a huge help, and a lot of people don't really think that they need it. But, but that really is the key, isn't it? Is to yeah. make yourself as visible as possible. What's your feeling on daylights? I've always wondered when is the right time to put the lights on. Uh, if you're in the blazing sun, do you need a light in front and in the rear if you're on, on roads? Um, during the day, not really. A lot of people will still wear the brighter colored clothing. So doing a road ride person, like I wouldn't just be wearing like gray shorts and a gray top. Mm-hmm. I still want to stand out um, when you're on the road. So traffic can see you going through junctions and intersections. With yeah. the lights, usually this sort of time of year, like I'll have my lights flashing at probably 7.30 to 8 o'clock at night. Right, okay. And I'll ride sort of to North Vancouver and back. Um, so it's definitely key, like the cars, how these cars have these lights on during the day. Um, it's definitely nice to have them on, just so you know you can be seen, that's all. Yeah. Uh, what's your feeling about having a mirror on your bike? Uh, a lot of people still do that as well, so it's good to know your surroundings and what's behind you. Um, we'll put the mirrors on the road bikes so instead of going to the bottom of the handlebar. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not a mirror like in your motor vehicle, but it still gives you an idea of what's behind because 
there's still people that sort of race around the streets on their bikes and they treat the seawall like it's a racetrack. So it is still good to have that idea of what's behind you. And there's mirrors that will adapt to most style bikes these days as well, whether it's a flat handlebar commuter bike or a road bike. Yeah, a mirror you can stick on your helmet too. It sort of shows what's behind. As a as a pedestrian as well as a cyclist myself, I, I have to tell you, there's nothing more annoying than having somebody ride up behind you, kind of sneak along, and then hit the bell. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. and I know that I know that there's a reason for that. Uh, what do you think about having? Is is a bell mandatory? Not mandatory in terms of law, but is it a necessary accessory that all bicycles should have? Um, for if they're doing the seawall and the commuting style, then yes, it is the law to have a bell on the bike. Um, we still have them on a lot of our bikes that should come with the bell to leave it on. But then a lot of customers still want to have that bell as well. And hopefully they're not terrorizing people around the seawall, but <laughs> it is a good indication. And I sort of use mine to serve inform another cyclist that I'm behind them and I want past. So I'm not trying to ding the bell of pedestrians to get out of the way. It's more about telling other cyclists where you're as well right yeah, it's just so kind of a heads up thing. just so they don't change lanes in front of you and they know there's someone behind them too so right and uh how do we get the message to cyclists because uh and, and again i i like to ride myself and and do a fair amount of it but i'm wondering how do we get the me- because i i signal i ride on the road i stay off the sidewalks i try my hardest to do the right thing and to be a good cyclist and a lot of people that drive or pedestrians and maybe don't ride as much, and even some riders, they, they seem to get on the road uh, or on the sidewalk, and, and they think that they don't have any rules to follow. How do we get that message out? Um, I think there's lots, there's lots of the um, programs like Bike to Work Week and things like that where you'll see a lot of bicycle companies sort of setting up tents and having repair stands and things. So I know that sort of is definitely working well as well. Um, most of the sort of setups for the uh, shops that are on display, they're on major cycle routes. So I think certain people sort of using the cycle lanes a bit better um, and working with the pedestrians as well and mm-hmm. the traffic. It's, I think it's always going to be a hard one to get exactly right. Mm-hmm. I like to drive as well and I like to ride, so I sort of have the case where if I was in the car, and someone went in front of me, then you'd be annoyed. But then you're on the bike, you don't want the car turning in front of you as well. So, I, well, I find it's uh, people that drive that, that that very rarely get on a bicycle that are probably uh, the most annoying to cyclists. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. the cyclists that never ever get behind the wheel of a car. That can be a bit of a pain too. But I mean, there, we we when we have a lot of people doing something, there's always going to be some issues. But I just want to I want to put the message out there that there you know you don't have to get angry and no. you, you can take it easy. Um, finally, just before I let you go, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more. And we talked about this at the outset, but Giant is really is a giant company. Where are these bikes made? And um, they they haven't always been produced under that name, have they? Um, Giant started off building frames for other companies' bikes um, back in the early 70s. And then in 72, we started to build bikes for ourselves as well. So they started off as a frame builder, not doing their own product, and then sort of realized that, hey, we should be doing our own bikes as well. And to the point now where Giant is one of the very few companies that actually build their own bikes. Um, if you look at our bike, you ha- it has a giant name on more than just all the parts. So we're building wheels, we're building saddles, handlebars. Um, our name are on the tyres of some of the bikes as well. So mm-hmm. they're definitely 
huge. We're the largest frame builder, and then we still build frames for other companies as well. So there's a bunch of companies that you'll see out there, and the frames that should come from our factories based in Taiwan. So cool. Is the Giant Vancouver store on West Fourth? Is that are you exclusively selling Giant bikes? Yes. Yeah. So we're exclusively Giant. Um, sort of eighty percent of our parts and accessories are Giant as well. Mm-hmm. Just to show the consumer that. A giant make amazing lights, bells, jackets, sort of pannier bags, racks. To sort of, we can set up a commuter bike, and every part on there could be a giant part. So, they're really coming to grips with sort of the parts and accessories too. Giant Vancouver is at seventeen seventeen West Fourth Avenue. That is just off of Burrard, if I've got my streets right. Yes, yeah, it's between Burrard and Pine Street. Okay, and uh, the website is giantvancouver.com, giantvancouver.com. Andrew Deneen is the manager from Giant Vancouver. Appreciate your time and uh, happy cycling. No problem. Thanks very much for the phone call. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, this is the season to, to get out on your bike and try to do the right thing. And I don't want to sit here and wave my finger at you because I'm not exactly um, you know, the nicest guy on the road all the time. It, it gets very frustrating sometimes when you're on a bike or conversely if you're a pedestrian or if you're a motorist. But there's things that you can do just to take it a little bit easier. And you'll find that the more you use your bicycle for commuting, the more you want to do it. It's a pretty efficient way to get around. We'll take a quick break. There's more on Vancouver Consumer coming up on News Talk 980 CKNW. A couple of odds and ends for you. Heard about that $100 million replica of Noah's Ark that is now open in Kentucky? I started thinking about it, and if there's ever a natural disaster... I just hope that they keep two of every kind of Kentucky bourbon that is available. (laughs) Doctors in India replaced a 12-year-old boy's damaged nose with a new one that was grown on his forehead. The boy's nose was badly damaged and disfigured when he suffered from pneumonia as a baby. More than a decade later, a team of surgeons moved the 12-year-old's new nose from his forehead to where the deformed nose was. And apparently it took about a year, and he looks just as good as everybody else. So that's a good news story. Star Wars, if you're a fan, Episode Eight wrap-up date has been revealed. Mark Hamill shared this in a tweet this week. Uh, episode Eight will wrap up filming Friday, July 22nd. We can look for the film sometime in a year after that. In Melbourne, Australia... A woman went into labor. It was earlier than expected. The dad-to-be ordered an Uber to take them to the hospital rather than wait for an ambulance. The new mom said that the Uber app allowed her to see how far away her driver was compared to not knowing how long she might have to wait for an ambulance to arrive. The woman praised the Uber driver for being overcautious and driving slowly to the hospital, but uh, somehow forgot to take the husband along. Uh, The neighbors of Mark Zuckerberg in Kauai, Hawaii, are upset. He wants to build a fence around his massive property. It's it's just ironic, isn't it, that here's the guy who invents Facebook, the most invasive thing that's ever come along to humankind, a guy who values his privacy so much that he has a fence around his entire property. He could have just bought the island. I don't know why he didn't. Uh... In Northern Ireland, a jockey was kicked in the face during a race in Italy, knocked out. The ambulance was called. When the vehicle raced onto the track, it ran him over and broke his leg. 
should have called Uber. Another man was arrested for trying to extinguish the Olympic torch. That's becoming part of the daily news routine. Uh, He did it by throwing a bucket of water over it as it passed through his small farming town. A 27-year-old man said he did it on a dare on Facebook. And you may have heard Bruce Allen on his rant earlier this week. He said uh, that Twinkies are on the comeback. This week it's the anniversary. It was 10 years ago in 2006 that the Twinkies cookbook was released. You may recall those award-winning, best-selling recipes, the Twinkie Burrito and Twinkie Lasagna. Oh, and just one more thing about cleaning up this weekend. If you're at home and you're trying to get rid of smells and things like that, one of the best ways to get rid of the smell of onions, any idea, Mike? Not a clue. Okay. Then, Not a clue. Then you've come to the right show. How about vinegar? It's, a, it's clean. It's a relatively environmentally friendly. So after you've been slicing up the onions and, and you're all stinky because you forgot to put the gloves on, you can put a little white vinegar on your fingers before and after cutting the onions, and this will take care of the smell. You see, see what you can learn? That's good, but that, does that take care of the tears? Uh, no, but there is a, there is a, uh, I, th- I don't know if it's chrome or stainless steel. There's a thing you can get in cooking stores and it's, it's about the size of the palm of your hand and it sits on the counter. And while you're doing the onions thing, apparently that's supposed to take it away. And the other thing is, and your grandmother, my grandmother, and probably your mother and your father did this too. And that's to run cold water. Did, does that work for you? You ever tried that? that? You haven't tried that? That's another thing that you can try. Uh, Vinegar is also good for removing the smell of paint. So if you're painting inside your house, you take a small bowl of white vinegar, put it on the table or the floor, and just leave it there, and all of those paint fumes and the smell of the paint will be absorbed by the uh, vinegar. Now, most of the paint that's being sold today is very low uh, in VOCs, which uh, was the cause of the smell of a lot of paint. And so you can get that low odor paint anyway to begin with and, and save your vinegar for your salad. My name is Ian Power. Mike Given is our technical producer. Coming up next, CKNW Weekend with Shane Foxman. Thanks for sharing your time with Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW.